Good morning. Everybody okay? You guys good? <laughs> you got an extra hour of sleep last night. I mean, that's, that's kind of a bonus, right? I guess the negative side is now it gets dark at, you know, 2.30 p.m. in Tennessee, so that's kind of a bummer. But did you guys score some uh, good candy this last week, too? That's one of the big benefits of being a parent. If you're not a parent yet, there's a couple of benefits. One is Halloween. You don't have to go do the trick-or-treating, but you get some of the, the benefits of your kids doing the trick-or-treating. And when you get older, you don't like the same kind of candy they do. Uh, you know, you start liking weird things like Almond Joys. <laughs> and your kids hate that, so they give you all the Almond Joys. You guys know what I'm talking about, parents, right? You get old and your taste buds get weird. You're like, Heath Bars, those are good, you know? <laughs> when, you're a kid, when you're a kid, you bite into a Heath Bar and you're like, what is this trash, right? <laughs> and you give it to your dad. It's me. So, um, yeah, good times. Hope you had a good week. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Working through, you, you get a little delirious when you get into the fourth and fifth services that you teach, but uh, we've been working through the, the, the book of First Samuel. We're in the Old Testament. If you've never been here before, we go through whole books of the Bible, work through them chapter by chapter, line by line. If you were not here last week, chapter 15 was, was a very, very fascinating chapter, a very interesting chapter. And what we see in chapter 15 is Saul, who is the first king of the Israelites, Saul, and he was, he was anointed by Samuel. We're going to talk about those two individuals and be introduced to a very, very important individual today, a guy named David. But uh, Saul was the first anointed king of the Israelites. In chapter 15, he is given one more opportunity from God to, to be obedient to God and to fulfill a prophecy that had been given uh, years before that. And, the, and, and the, the command that God gave Saul was to go and completely obliterate, annihilate the, Amal uh, the Amalekite people to completely wipe them out. Every person, every animal, every belonging they had, everything, completely destroy them and, and, and wipe them out. Saul kind of did that, but not really. He went in, he attacked the Amalekites, but he spared the king, kind of as a bragging right, a trophy, spared a lot of the good plunder, the good animals that they had and all these kinds of things. And he did not finish the job. He was disobedient. And so one of the big things we talked about last week was there, there are consequences for being disobedient to God. And the other thing we talked about, because there are all these wonderful metaphors we take from the Old Testament about how we live today and how God told, told Saul to completely eradicate this evil, right? The, these people, this evil, and he didn't. He eradicated 99% of them, but he kept that one back and the metaphor that we see there, see there is that God calls us to eradicate the evil in our lives, our hearts. But when we keep or compartmentalize and hold some back, it's still disobedient because we're not completely doing what the Lord wants us to do. That's what we talked about last week. This week, chapter 16, that we'll get through relatively quick. It's a pretty short chapter, uh, but we're going to talk a lot about spirits. We're going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit, which is a good thing. And we're going to talk a lot about demonic spirits. And, and typically in the church world in the United States, um, we go to one or two of two extremes with these things. We either completely neglect spiritual warfare, completely neglect any talk of demonic influence or possession. We, we, we just don't want to talk about it. We stay away from it, right? Or we get really extra biblical. I don't mean extra about the Bible. I mean outside of the Bible. And we get really squirrely with this kind of stuff, right? We believe a lot of stuff that's not biblical, 
and, and get a little over the top with spiritual warfare and deliverance and you know everything's possessed and everyone's got this and we go real far to that other extreme. Uh, the best thing to do with the Word of God is to let the Word of God explain the Word of God. So it's good the way we go through the Bible at this church because it, it prohibits us from, from avoiding tough conversations like we're going to have today about spiritual things, overtly spiritual things. So that's what we're gonna talk about. Because that's what the Bible talks about today. We're gonna talk about being full of the Holy Spirit of God and what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit of God. So you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything will be in there. If you got a Bible, we're in the Old Testament, ninth book of the Old Testament, 16th chapter. Uh, if you have a smartphone, it means anyone over the age of six nowadays. If you just download the Experience Community app, click on Sermon Notes, you got everything right there. And of course, everything will be on the screen right behind me, so we should be in pretty good shape, okay? All right, thank you guys for being here. Glad you're here. How's the weather outside? Is it chilly? Good? Yeah, this morning it was kind of a bad idea to, to go barefoot, so got here and it was like 45 degrees, and I was like, eh, it's kind of cold. All right, so let me pray. And um, we'll jump into this and, and see where the Lord takes us, okay? All right. Father God, we love you. Lord, thank you for everyone in this room this morning. We thank you, God, that we have this, this, this comfortable, safe environment where we can come in and, and we can study and, and we can worship and we can take communion and we can fellowship with each other and we can grow closer to you, God, through those things. We thank you for that, Lord. I pray that you, you bless this church. We also pray, Father, uh, for every church in our city, Pray for our other campuses, the churches in those cities. And, and Lord, we just pray as we talk about the Spirit today that we are not only full of your Holy Spirit, God, but, but that you equip us, Lord, to, to, to be wise and to discern spirits, God, and, and to stay away from things that may be evil. And Lord, uh, to live a life that, that honors you. We love you, Father. We thank you. God, keep your hand on everyone in this room. Keep your hand on me as I do my best to teach your word. We love you. We thank you. Pray all these things in your name, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's read a little bit. If you don't remember from last week, one of the really sad parts about where we're at in 1 Samuel is at the end of chapter 15, it says that Saul and Samuel never speak again. So Samuel mourns Saul, he leaves Saul, and they never speak again, and that's where we pick up, okay? The Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected for myself a king from his sons. Samuel asked, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, do you come in peace? In peace, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord, he replied. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Okay, so just like I said earlier, God has, at this point, completely rejected Saul. We're gonna see that in chapter 16. He's given him one more chance. Saul was selfish, self-centered. And the reason why God rejects Saul is because Saul rejected God's commands and his word. 
and Samuel was appropriate in mourning for Saul. We talked about this last week. It's very appropriate, I say Christians should do this, that we should mourn for people who are choosing to live in rebellion to God because we know the path that they're going down. But at this point, God says to Samuel, okay, you've mourned, it's time to move forward. And what we learn from that is this. This is very important. If you've lived any life, you understand this. There is a time and, and sometimes even a season for us to be in mourning or even anger. There is some, sometimes an appropriate time or sometimes an appropriate extended amount of time that we can be mournful, that we can even be upset, but we cannot stay in those seasons forever, right? We have to move past those. We have a purpose. We have things to do. God will provide and make a way and we can overcome those circumstances and we can see a difference in our personal life and we can see a difference in the lives of those around us. But we have to keep moving forward. And so what God tells Samuel is this. He says, fill your horn with oil and go. The horn was literally a horn. It was a ram's horn and it would have come from a sacrifice And so a ram would have been sacrificed. They would fill this with olive oil. Talk about that here in a second, though. Before Samuel does this, he even says to God, okay, I'll go. How am I going to do that, though? Saul is still king. He's going to find out what I'm doing, and he's going to kill me. But God says, I've got it taken care of, and he gives Samuel a plan. So again, this horn that Samuel was supposed to fill up was from a sacrifice. The oil that went into the horn to anoint people was a representation of the Holy Spirit of God. We too receive an anointing like this when we become believers. The Spirit is poured out on us by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And when we are covered with that Holy Spirit, filled with that Holy Spirit, we not only are, are we empowered to do what God wants us to do, but we are given the ability to, to, again, to move forward. Even in hard, scary, difficult times, we're moving, we're gravitating more and more to what God wants us to do in this life. So you see, again, this symbolism in these things. So Samuel listened to the instruction of God. He goes to Bethlehem, the the elders of the the town show up and they're like, hey, what are you here for? He goes, hey, I'm just here to to make a sacrifice and to meet Jesse and his sons. That's why I'm here. So he makes his intentions clear, Samuel does, meets Jesse, meets all, we're gonna talk about where he meets all the sons here in a second. And he invites Jesse and his family to come with him to the sacrifice. But first they have to be consecrated. That's not a word that we use all the time. It's not overtly complicated. What that word consecrated means is to not only be dedicated to God, but to be ritually clean. They would literally clean themselves off a certain way and they would dedicate themselves to God. The way we do that in the New Testament world that we're living in, right, is we, we are consecrated. When we give our life to Christ, we ask God to forgive us of our sin whenever we sin. And we are clean of that, okay? We're consecrated. So to have understanding to have progress that only comes when we deliberately dedicate ourselves to Christ, when we deliberately clean ourselves, Jesus cleans us, but we have to repent, right? And we continually listen to him and we move forward through the story, okay? Here we go. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or stature, 
because I've rejected him. I highlighted this part. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shammah, but Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, he answered, but right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down and eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him and he had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said, anoint him for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. So Samuel arrives. He has consecrated Jesse and Jesse's family, all of his sons, and he starts going through all of them, and he sees the first son. The first son is the oldest that he sees. Must have been a good-looking dude, must have been pretty impressive, muscular, built, maybe tall. And, and Samuel sees him, he goes, well, surely this is the one. He's the oldest, he's, you know, good-looking, he's built, man's man, like this has to be the one. And God's response to that, listen, this is maybe one of the most important principles in all of Christianity and all of the Bible. God responds with this. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans only see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart, right? So we can only see what we can see with our eyes, but God sees deeper than that. Now, what does that mean for us? So here's the thing. If we are Christians in this room and we have the Holy Spirit, we do have a certain ability to make wise decisions and judgments you know the one scripture of the Bible that everyone on planet earth knows whether they're a believer or not? It's Matthew 7, 2. They even know it in the King James Version. Judge not, lest ye be judged, right? You know why we use that scripture? And you, you, know, you wanna know why everyone knows that one scripture in the Bible? Because it's, we hide behind it so no one can judge that what we're doing is sinful. What the Bible actually means, Jesus said it, by the way, what, what the Bible actually means by that is we are to not just judge by the limited side of humanity, the Bible calls us to make judgments, to make righteous judgments. If you're a parent in this room, you've made six billion judgments in your life, and you're supposed to. You're supposed to look at things and, and judge, this is not good for my child, or this is not good for my family, or my marriage, or my relationship with God. We are to make judgments. But even though the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom, that's a gift of the Holy Spirit, and discernment, which I think is connected to the gift of wisdom. I think with the gift of wisdom, we get the gift of discernment as well, the ability to make wise decisions. Even though God gives us the ability to make good judgments, we are still limited. We're limited because I cannot really see all of your intent or your emotions or your, your thoughts. I can do the best I can. I can use the gifts that God gives me, and you can do this as well, and we can make good judgments, but they're not always going to be perfect judgments. God, on the other hand, sees deeper. He sees all things. 
every corner of the heart. So whenever people say things like, only God can judge me, well, in a way, yes, I can judge if you're making a good or bad decision or a righteous or unrighteous decision, but ultimately God's decision or judgment to, to eternally put you in heaven or eternally cast you into hell is yes, that is up to him because only God can see every cavity, every crevice, every corner of the human heart and human mind. And we cannot. And we have to step back and just trust that God does see everything, that God is just and righteous, and that he's gonna take care of everything and make the right decision. And we just have to step back and do that, okay? So, after no confirmation from any of the sons, Jesse uh, brings out his seven sons and Samuel's like, no, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one. He goes, you got any more boys running around here? He knew where he was supposed to be. He knew what God had told him. But at this point, everything wasn't lining up. And then Jesse goes, oh, well, now that you mention it, imagine being the son that everyone forgot, right? Now that you mention it, I have another boy. He's out tending the sheep, the youngest. And so we've learned from Samuel over the last couple of months as we've been studying 1 Samuel, that if we are to hear from God, we have to have a relationship with God. Samuel heard from God because he talked to God, because he had a relationship with God. Not only that, when we have a relationship with God, not only do we, do we learn to hear from God, but we also learn that even when the circumstances don't seem to line up, if God told us to be there, we start to learn to trust God's timing. We start to learn patience. Still working on patience, but we learn those kinds of things over time. And Samuel demonstrated those kinds of things. Now, <laughs> you maybe won't think this is funny. Sometimes I read the Bible and I think God purposely throws some things in that are, that are just kind of, you know, to make you chuckle a little bit. This is one of those things. So God tells Samuel, hey, <laughs> men and women, they look at the outside. They, they look at what is visible. I look at the heart. And so you're thinking this next king's gonna be like some like, you know, underdog, squirrely runt guy that's kind of ugly and not, you know, much to look at. And then old David walks in, and how do they describe him? Beautiful eyes. <laughs> healthy, handsome appearance. Uh, you gingers in the room will appreciate that. More than likely, healthy there literally means red. So it probably means that he either had red hair or that he sunburned easily. So, I mean, I guess gingers do both, both of those things. So anyways, so the, the greatest king of all of, of, of Israel's history uh, either had red hair or reddish skin from being sunburned easily. So he walks in, and um, Samuel obviously thinks this is a, a, a good-looking kid too. But at this point, David's looks are, are irrelevant. That's already been established. So you know what we learn here? And man, this is a, this, I, I hope you guys don't think I'm being goofy with this too. What we learn is this. In Christianity, we often say things like this. We go, man, God is the God of the, the, the underdog. He's the God of the impoverished. He's the God of the broken and, and the fringe and the destitute and the ones that no one cares about. And you know what? That is true. God is the God of those people if they want him to be their God. God is also, this is also a true statement. God is also the God of the beautiful and the intelligent and the wealthy and the educated. He's their God too. We're gonna see, not only is David a good looking kid, 
kills lions in his spare time. He's a musician. He's kind of the total package. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Yeah, again, we'll, we'll read it here in a second. The thing is this. God does not care if you're beautiful or not beautiful, talented or not talented, educated. God cares about people who are humble enough like David to be a person after his heart. That's what he cares about. And so we don't need to pigeonhole God and, well, God only loves the destitute. He does love the destitute. He loves everybody. And he will use anybody who is humble enough to relent to his will. And David just happened to be a good-looking, talented kid who wrestled wild animals and kills a giant eventually. So it says <laughs> that after getting confirmation from God, Samuel anoints David. He literally pours this oil over his head and it runs down. This act uh, was symbolic of God covering and protecting and setting apart um, kings, Saul and David at this point, um, priests. They would do it with altars. They would do it with tabernacles and temples. And it was, it was a very symbolic of the Holy Spirit setting this person or this thing aside. So here's where it starts to get interesting in this next part. Like King Saul, the Holy Spirit came powerfully on David. Unlike King Saul, it stayed on David for the rest of his life. And we're gonna find out that the Holy Spirit leaves Saul. So from this day forward, at this point in the Bible, all the way to present day, Everything has changed for the Jewish people right here. David, right? This is where the bloodline of Christ would come from. Everything, everything changes from this point forward, all right? Now, here is, in my opinion, the most interesting part of this chapter. Now, the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. So Saul's servants said to him, you see that an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord, that's Saul, command your servants here in your presence to look for someone who knows how to play the lyre. Whenever the evil spirit from God comes on you, that person can play the lyre and you will feel better. Then Saul commanded his servants, find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's also a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul dispatched messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey, loaded it with bread, a wineskin, and one young goat, and sent them by his son, David, to Saul. When David came to Saul and entered into his service, Saul loved him very much and David became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, let David remain in my service for he has found favor with me. Now look at this last part. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, that's the evil spirit, David would pick up his lyre and play. Saul would be relieved, feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. We'll talk about that. That's very interesting to me. So not only is it very interesting that Saul had the Holy Spirit and it left, it is even more interesting to know that God sent an evil spirit to torment Saul. I'll add to the complexity even more. If you have read ahead, 
Chapter 19 is pretty fascinating, where the Holy Spirit comes back to Saul. He gets naked and prophesies, and then it leaves him again. Whenever people say the Old Testament is not interesting, that's interesting. A, a naked dude who has lost the Holy Spirit, got it again, prophesies, lays out on the floor naked, and it leaves him again. That's interesting, right? A little weird, but interesting. So how do we understand this? How do we even begin to understand what is happening right here? Well, maybe it helps us a little bit to know that Saul was under what is called the Sinai Covenant, the, this promise. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 17. What this meant, and this is very simple to understand. It sounds complicated and fancy, but it's not. The Sinai Covenant was, was a deal that God and humanity had with each other. God said, as long as you follow my word and my commands, you're my people. But if you don't, you're not my people. Now, we often say that there is a difference between how people followed God in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and there were some differences, but, but the fundamental principles are true forever. Jesus in John chapter 8 says, you are my disciples if you hold on to my word, if you do my word. What that means is this. If you are an Israelite in Saul's time and you turned your back on God, you are no longer a child of God. If you are a New Testament Christian, professing Christian, but you do not follow any of the commands of Jesus Christ, right? Or you neglect certain ones that make you uncomfortable, Jesus himself would say in John chapter eight, you're really not one of my followers. You only are my follower. You can go back and read it if you want to. I'm not making this up. That you're only my follower, you're only my disciple if you continue in my word. Jesus said that. So how do we understand this evil's presence, this evil spirit? coming into Saul. Because Saul chose to be self-centered and rebel against God's instruction, he broke his relationship with God, his covenant with God, therefore opening up the door for demonic influence. That's what is happening in this part. Going on a little bit further, is it says that that demon, that demonic influence, that evil spirit, tormented him. The word tormented right there literally translates to extreme fear, debilitating, paralyzing fear. And as the sovereign creator God, means that God knows all, sees all, nothing happens outside of his knowledge. As the all-knowing sovereign God, God can punish people however he chooses. And in the case of Saul, he chose to punish him with extreme fear and extreme paranoia. Now listen, and, and, and I hope no one gets offended by this. That's never my goal. If you struggle with extreme fear and extreme paranoia, the Bible says that fear is not a spirit given to us by God. Does that mean you're demonically possessed if you have debilitating, debilitating anxiety or fear or paranoia? No, 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 it doesn't mean that. But I will offer up another kind of uh, caveat to this conversation. When we are in distance, when we do not have a good relationship or no relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, the rock, the, 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 the stability, the security that we need, when we are distant from security and stability, and the absence of, of security is insecurity, and the absence of stability is instability, and fruit of instability and insecurity is fear. And this is why we live in a nation, and you guys were waiting for me to knock on American culture. It took me a half hour this time. But anyways, <laughs> the reason why I think so many people walk in debilitating fear 
is because they are not connected to the Prince of Peace. And I'm not trying to say that judgmentally or to be mean to you, but we're afraid of everything. And I'm not just talking about the big stuff like World War III and stuff like that that's right around the corner. Man, we, have, we live in debilitating fear of not being affirmed or we live in debilitating fear of rejection and we live in debilitating fear of our image and we're, we're, we're scared to death all the time. And this is why people are constantly trying to grasp on to things that are fading and fleeting and temporary because we're afraid. And so though demons aren't always attached to things like debilitating fear, distance from the Prince of Peace, a natural byproduct of that is fear. So we're talking about demonic influence. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about this, this talk of, of the devil and demons. Some people go, oh, it gets a little weird to me. I'm not trying to get weird with you this morning, but I'm gonna tell you this. It is impossible to say you believe in God without believing in the devil. And the Bible talks about it from Genesis chapter three all the way to the end of Revelation. Always talks about it. Our problem, like I said at the onset of this, this, this lesson, was in modern American Christianity, we either, we either give the devil too much credit or we don't give him enough credit. By too much credit, what I mean is, is over the years I've had people come up to me you know, a man that cheats on his wife and he's like, Corey, the devil made me do it. And I'm like, nope. The devil didn't put that hotel key in your hand and cause you to go in her room. You did that. That was you. No one forced you to do that. No one, you know, like the devil didn't grab both of your cell phones and exchange numbers on each of those. The devil didn't make you do that. You did that, right? There are other times that we give the devil, uh, uh, we don't give the devil enough credit where we don't talk about things like spiritual warfare and demonic possession and demonic oppression. I'll tell you what's, man, I don't need to go there. No, let's not go there. No. Here's the thing though. When it comes to demonic influence, when it comes to deliverance, that's kind of a buzzword in Christianity right now. When it comes to spiritual warfare, we are to get our information about these things from this book. And we need to be extremely cautious, I would say just don't do it, to go outside of this book. If someone tells you something about demonic influence, about spiritual warfare, about deliverance, any of those things, and they cannot back it up with accounts in the Bible and scripture, any other doctrine outside of this, the Bible says is a, is a doctrine of demons. So we need to be very cautious. And I will tell you this, Spiritual victory and spiritual freedom come from an adherence of the word of God. The Bible says it is the truth that sets you free. And so it's not like the exorcist where, you know, people's heads are spinning and black goo is shooting out and all that kind of stuff. But there is such a thing as demonic possession. There is such a thing as demonic influence. And the Bible tells us how to deal with those things. And the Bible tells us, there are many accounts in the Bible of what that can look like at times. So, as God's plan unfolds, Saul seeks someone to soothe him with music, and one of his servants goes, I know exactly the guy. He's good looking, you know, plays music, he's valiant, handsome. So after, after David entered into Saul's service, it says that Saul grew to love him. And that's gonna be really sad when we start moving on through Samuel. It's, it's really sad that once upon a time, these two guys had this really kind of great, almost father-son relationship. David became Saul's armor bearer. And this would have made David one of the closest people in Saul's life. Very, very important to Saul. 
Now, here we go. This is also a, a, a very complicated verse. It says, whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, that's not the Holy Spirit, that's a demonic spirit. Whenever that spirit would come on Saul, David would come in and he would play music and it said that the spirit, the evil spirit would leave. Let me tell you my opinion on this. I don't believe David playing music or singing songs. I'm sure he sang songs because obviously he wrote a bunch. They're in the Bible. I don't think him coming in and singing songs and things like that, I don't think that had anything to do with the, the, the deliverance of, of these demons from Saul. This is what I believe. And we know this from, from earlier on in Samuel and we know this from, from times in the New Testament. Saul had a, a, a demon in him. He had an evil spirit in him. David, on the other hand, had the Holy Spirit of God in him. My belief is simply this, that when David came in the room, the spirit that was in him would not allow this evil spirit to be in the same space. And that had to leave. That teaches us in a very important theological lesson. You remember the story of Dagon that we talked about a couple of months back, that the ark and Dagon, the God of the Philistines, could not be in the same space. Just like in our heart, if the Holy Spirit occupies our heart, there is no room for demonic influence in us. And so if we are full of the Holy Spirit, we're protected, we're okay. We should make sure we're full of the Holy Spirit. David was full of the Spirit, came on him strongly, the Bible says. So I believe that when he walked in the room, any demonic influence had to leave because they cannot stand. It's just like the darkness can never overshadow the light. Light always wins. And that's why I think the Holy Spirit would leave, or I'm sorry, that the demonic spirit would leave when the Holy Spirit came in the room. There are also times in the Bible when God uses demons or allows them to act. Does that in Job, go back and read. It goes back in, in, in Acts chapter five, he allows it. Here, maybe God allows this demonic spirit to, to torment Saul because this is actually the vessel that got David into the palace. This is the vessel that not only got David into the palace, but got David to be in the throne room with Saul. The other thing we have to remember is this. This is an important statement right here. We have to remember that Saul willingly rejected the will of God. And when we willingly reject the will of God, we willingly reject the protection of God. Do you hear me? When we step out of the covering of God, we subject ourselves to all these other things that can get to us. And we have to remember that when we say, God, take your hands off me, that means that a lot of other things can put their hands on you. Very important, okay? All right, let's get a little churchy here for a second. We're talking about spirits today. And a lot of times we can easily neglect the reality of spiritual warfare. Do you know the Bible says you do not fight against flesh and blood? You fight against principalities. You fight against spiritual things, darkness. It's not like, you know, the Keanu Reeves movie, Constantine. We don't shoot demons with cross-shaped shotguns. That's not biblical, right? Might be fun to watch, but it's not biblical. We fight a spiritual battle. So it is easy to neglect the reality of spiritual warfare, demonic influence, typically because most people haven't read their Bibles. We've watched too many movies. We've heard some goofy, angry pastor somewhere talk about this kind of stuff, and we didn't go research it ourselves. A lot of times we don't know much about it and we neglect it because of misinformation or distraction or we're just plain lazy. But I want you to hear me this morning. 
in reality, the devil is real, demons are real, and Jesus said in John 10, they are here to steal, kill, and destroy you. You would, I'm not trying to be mean to anyone this morning, you would be an absolute fool to profess faith in Christ and not believe that all hell is going to come against you. It will. It is coming for you. Now, we don't need to be afraid of that as long as we are full of the Holy Spirit, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So here's the thing. We reject the Holy Spirit when we have unrepentant sin in our life. We do what Saul did. We reject the Holy Spirit when I have conscious sin in my life and I refuse to bring it to the Lord and give it up and and ask for forgiveness. We open up a door when we are disobedient to God, when we are selfish, when we withhold forgiveness of others, the Bible says, and when we entertain things that are unholy or contradictory to the word. I'm not trying to be legalistic with you this morning, but there are some things, brothers and sisters, that you don't need to watch. Do you hear me? There's some things you don't need in your home. There are some things you don't need to entertain. If we're going to talk super churchy here this morning, when I hear Christians talk about, man, we watch all these movies about conjuring and demonic possession and all these kinds of things, man, I'm I'm not trying to be judgmental. You know, you work out your own convictions with the Lord. That crap is not welcome in my home. I will not entertain that. Do you want to know why? Because demonic possession is a real thing and not to be trifled with. I have seen demons cast out of people. I have prayed for people who have been demonically possessed and relieved, delivered from that. Now, again, it's few and far between. I've done it a handful of times in 14 years as being a pastor. But when I hear people make jokes about these things or entertaining these things, I think it's foolish. I think it's beyond foolish. So whenever we entertain these kinds of things, we open up doors. And whenever we reject the hand of God, we open up the hand of a lot of other things to come into our life. So what are we to do? The first thing that we must do, Peter says this. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 5, 8. He says, be sober and vigilant. Why? Listen to me. Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion looking to devour you. Peter, the first leader of the Christian church, says you have an enemy He's like a roaring lion. He is a game adversary. And please hear me out today. Whenever we are not thinking clearly, the devil has a huge opportunity to get in and destroy us. What does that mean? Drugs and, when I say drugs and alcohol, any kind of intoxication. If we get high, that opens up a door. If you don't... Anyway, I won't go down that either. I can grind an ax on that all day long. When we get high, that opens up a door. When we get intoxicated with alcohol, not just those things. When we get, high, when we get intoxicated with food or, or drunk on power or addicted to affirmation, this causes us to not think clearly. And when we're not thinking clearly, the devil sees an opportunity. So what do we do? What we must do? is we must allow God to get a hold of our minds. How do we do that? We have to fill our minds with godly things. I say it every weekend, but I'm gonna say it every weekend until I'm not a pastor. We have to be praying. 
We have to be in the word of God. We have to be in good community, AKA the church. And when we are praying, when we are in the word, when we have people in our lives who will call us out when we're being stupid or evil, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we have the ability to capture our thoughts, control our minds. You ever talk to people who are like, man, I just can't control my thoughts. You're not praying enough. You're not reading the word enough. You're not in good community. You got to get closer to God. Because when we're closer to God, he gives us the ability to capture, to control those thoughts so they don't wander into places where they're not supposed to go. Because when we're not thinking clearly, right, it gives the devil an opportunity to come in. We must also strive to be full of God's spirit. Now, here's the thing. There's a difference between possessing the Holy Spirit and being full of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.13 that when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You are saved. So you receive that at salvation. There's a difference though when we are full of it. Being full of the Holy Spirit fulfills us, full, right? Empowers us to live a more God-honoring life. You know what the problem with, with, again, a lot of Western Christians, Western world Christians is they just want to get out of hell free. I'm not going, I'm saved. Listen, and I would question someone's salvation if all they want to do is escape punishment and have no desire to have a relationship with their savior. I would question their salvation, quite frankly. But so many people are content just going, well, I'm not going to go to hell. But if we say we love Christ, Listen, I'm married, but I still want to talk and hang out with and build my relationship with my wife. I didn't just get married and I'm like, all right, peace, right? No, I love this person. I want to get to know this person more and more and more. It should be even more so with our Savior. And when we're full of the Holy Spirit, it allows us to live a life that honors God more. It strengthens us against the attacks of the devil And only when we are filled up with the Holy Spirit do we have the ability to pour out on others. Listen, a glass can only spill what it contains, right? It's not enough to just possess the glass. There's nothing to pour out unless we fill it up. So unless I'm full of the Holy Spirit, I can't pour into my children. I can't pour into my marriage. I can't pour into you. So it's not enough that I just have it. I want to be overflowing with it. When we're overflowing with it, it starts to affect the people around us. And we're equipped by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We have the fruit of the Holy Spirit being produced in our life. Joy, peace, love, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, the different gifts that come with that. Wisdom, knowledge, discernment, tongues, interpretation of tongues, courageous faith, healing, miracles, all these things that come with that. The ability to to miraculously teach and train and all these things that come with the Holy Spirit, but we have to be full of the Holy Spirit to see those things. So, okay, how does that happen? I'm gonna tell you probably my favorite scripture right now is from Ephesians 5. Paul says this, Pay careful attention to how you walk. And again, back to to American culture, Western society. Man, we are not thinking, we're not thinking a year ahead. We're not thinking two months ahead. We're not thinking next week. We're so addicted to instantaneous affirmation. We're so addicted to instantaneous pleasure 
that we're not thinking what's going to happen in the future. You know what's, what's crazy though? If we're paying attention to how we're living and if we're sober-minded, sin starts to look absolutely insane, does it not? Think about it. How many people do you hear of give up a marriage with a beautiful woman and, and a relationship with their children and a great job and a nice neighborhood and they throw it all away for one night with a woman? Now, when you're clear-headed and you're paying attention to where you're walking, you step back and go, that is nuts. But if you're not paying attention to how you're living, brothers and sisters, you're not thinking about where the path leads. You're just thinking about the instant gratification of the soft step that I'm taking right now. But the Bible says, pay attention to how you live. You wanna know why? Because you're not an accident. You wanna know why? Because you're made in the image of the creator God. You're valuable invaluable. Pay attention to how you live, Paul says. The first step in paying attention to how we live is to walk in humility. If we're ever going to be full of the Holy Spirit, listen to me, if you're ever going to be full of the Holy Spirit, you got to be less full of yourself. You have to empty yourself out to be full of the Holy Spirit. We must pray. We must listen. We must submit to the word of God. We must yield our desires for his desires, our will for his will. And like we said earlier on in the lesson, if we're gonna be full of the Holy Spirit, we have to be consecrated. We have to dedicate ourselves to him and we have to take the steps to get clean. That means forgiveness of sins. That means repentance. It means going to, to Jesus. Every time we make a mistake, God, forgive me, clean me, and he will. And here's the thing. Even though the Bible doesn't give us just one little quick, pithy sentence about how to be full of the Holy Spirit, we have this entire book that shows us how we are to draw closer to him. And it is through complete and daily relenting of our minds, that we give our minds to him, that we focus on things that are godly, that we stay away from things that are ungodly, and again, I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm not trying to tell you all you have to do is listen to Christian music, which I don't care for, or Christian movies, which I really don't care for. I'm not telling you that you have to do those things. But I'm saying maybe we make a deal with ourselves that I'm not gonna watch anything that blatantly breaks the commands of the Bible. I'm gonna stay away from things that God says is evil. Maybe I'm gonna do that. If we give our minds to him, if we give our emotions to him, if we give our thoughts and our feelings, if we give our bodies to him, if we relent our actions to Christ every single day, the less it is about us and the more it is about him, this is how we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We build this relationship with him and we are full of the Holy Spirit. We are, we are empowered. We are equipped. We will start to see again the fruit you'll start to see joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control in your life. God, it says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that he distributes gifts as he sees fit, that God may give you the gift of prophecy or give you the gift of courageous faith or tongues or interpretation of tongues, or he may give you wisdom. He will give you wisdom if you ask for it. The Bible assures you of that, and he'll give it to you in abundance. The gift of discernment, 
that these things come along to those who are full of the Spirit. And there's not only an impact on us, there's a ripple effect that impacts those around us. It's a deliberate, conscious effort to pay attention to where we walk. A deliberate, conscious effort to recognize the path we are on, to pray, to listen, to build a relationship with the Lord. And we are full of the Holy Spirit. Would you bow your heads with me? Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I'm not trying to get dramatic with you. I'm 44 years old. I've been a Christian for 20 years. In the last 20 years that I've been a Christian and in my 44 years of living, I cannot think of a time in history where it is more important that you are just running over with the Holy Spirit of God. I hope you heard what I just said there. If you've ever needed to not just get out of hell free, but to be full of the Spirit. It is a dark society that we live in. It is a dark world that we live in. But if we are full of the Holy Spirit of God, the darkness can never overcome the light. If you're in this room and maybe you're a new Christian or maybe uh, you're not a Christian yet, but you have questions, up here on my right, your left, is Pastor Jonathan, works with all of our discipleship stuff. He'd be more than happy to talk with you if you need someone to talk with, ask questions. We have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything, they'd be more than happy to pray with you. And then the last thing is, is we have communion all the way around this room. Wherever you see a lamp on a table, all the pillars in the middle, the body and blood of Jesus Christ represented in, in bread and wine. Everyone is welcome to take that as long as you've asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin. Here's what I'd like you to kind of meditate on a little bit today if you take communion. And please be respectful if you don't take communion. But if you take communion today, we often just think about the forgiveness of sins when it comes to the cross. But without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we would have no access to the Holy Spirit. It was poured out on all people because Jesus left in physical form and came back in spirit. So all of us in this room have access, not only to, to, to possessing the Holy Spirit, but being full of it. And maybe today as you're taking communion, of course, you have to ask God to forgive you if there's any sin in your heart. But if you've done that, I would also say, God, fill me with your spirit. I wanna dedicate myself to you. I wanna walk in a relationship with you. And if you walk in a relationship with, with, with God, he will fill you with his spirit. And you'll see the fruit and the gifts of that, okay? Let me pray for you. Father God, we love you. Lord, we thank you so much, God. I pray that you keep your hand on everyone in this room this morning. God, I pray, Lord, that we are humble enough to empty ourselves out of ourselves, to repent uh, for anything in our lives, God, that we may need to ask for your forgiveness for. And Lord, just like the scripture says in the gospel, we don't just wanna clean the house, God. We want the house to be full. And so, Lord, I pray that you fill us up with your spirit, God. Equip us, walk with us, guide us, lead us, Lord. Produce the fruit in us, God, and use the gifts through us, Jesus, however you see fit. Lord, keep your hand on everyone in this room, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself.